You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 31st of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, the Qatari Prime Minister heads to Washington to help with the push for a ceasefire in Gaza. If we can put an end for this conflict that's been lasting for decades, the entire face of the region will change. But how close to a ceasefire are we? We'll hear the latest on talks as Israel's Prime Minister says no to key parts of a deal. Also ahead on today's programme, Argentina's parliament votes on a new economic bill a week after a national strike against planned austerity measures. Plus... This is Monocle's Asia editor, James Chambers, and I'll be coming on the show a little later on to discuss the latest attempt by the Hong Kong government to introduce a new national security law. And the legendary Berlin department store KDW is insolvent. We'll find out why. Plus, we'll be in live in Copenhagen for a touch of design at SIF. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in the news. The US president says he's now decided how to respond to the attack by Iran-backed militants on American soldiers in Jordan, killing three service personnel. Spain's Congress has blocked a controversial amnesty bill that aimed to protect Catalan separatists. And Liverpool has handed over the symbolic keys to Eurovision's to this year's host, Sweden. Liverpool hosted the annual song contest last year on behalf of Ukraine. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said that Israel will not pull its troops out of Gaza or free thousands of Palestinian prisoners. It's dampened rising hopes of a possible new ceasefire deal in the territory. Meanwhile, the leader of Hamas says the group has received details of a ceasefire proposal for Gaza put forward after talks in Paris. Ismail Haniyeh says that Hamas will study the plan, which the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has described as strong and compelling. Well, I'm joined now from Brussels by Dina Esfandiri, who is a senior advisor for Middle East and North Africa at the International Crisis Group. A very good morning to you, Dina. Good morning. So we go into today with the, the, the hope that some sort of... Um, agreement can be made in the next few days but from the position that I have just described we are further apart than ever. Yeah it does sound like it. Um, Hamas has made it clear that basically the only way they would accept any deal is if it leads to a full ceasefire. Um, Israel has oscillated back and forth between accepting uh, the the deal um, in Paris and then also kind of coming up with some of the things that you described earlier. So, and every other participant has been cautiously optimistic, but then behind the scenes, way, way less optimistic. So I'm not sure it looks as good as it was initially painted to be. And yesterday when we saw Benjamin Netanyahu um, delivering a speech, he he was casting doubt on on the deal. He was saying that the only thing that Israel is going to be content with is absolute absolute victory. But he's being pulled in different directions, isn't he? He's got the far right who, who want him to pursue this um, this absolute victory um, policy. But you have the families of the hostages who are saying, do everything you can to bring them home. And there is this issue, isn't there, that publicly and privately, as you just described, both sides have very loud voices. 
Absolutely. Um, and it's not just those two camps that you're talking about. There are even more directions that he's being pulled in. Firstly, there's his own personal dilemma. All of this is tied to um, the problems and the court cases that he faces internally in Israel. For as long as he's in power and maintains this war, he doesn't have to face any of that. Then add to that some of the discontent that we're hearing about um, within uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, where some generals, as is often the case with people in the army, are calling for a bit more of a strategy, a bit more of a plan, um, rather than just total destruction of Hamas, which at this point seems uh, a bit far-fetched. And the leader of Hamas has said that they will study this plan. Um, What do you read into that? Um, I think it means that they are going to consider it, but they've been very clear. They want um, a uh, they want the proposal to basically lead to a final and total lasting ceasefire. They want the withdrawal of all forces from Gaza, and they want the total opening of borders to allow aid to come in um, and and in order for rebuilding to begin. Uh, I'm not sure this deal will lead to that. Tell us a little bit more, therefore, about how bringing two totally opposing views are brought together. Um, We have this meeting in Paris between the spy chiefs of the United States and also of Israel, but then we have the Egyptians and the Qataris involved in this. And now we have the Qatari prime minister in the United States for for more negotiation. Um, He has said that... um, Sheikh Mohammed, Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed, has said um, that progress is being made on the Gaza truce and captive talks. Um, what do we know about what has been said and what's been done in in, in Washington? Um, we know very little, uh, but what we do know is that there really is a flurry of diplomatic activity from various parts of, of actors in the Middle East and also outside the Middle East to really try to find a solution to this conflict. The problem ultimately is that you have two sides, as you outlined, that are incredibly far apart. Um, the Israeli side that has uh, made it clear that they seek only the destruction, the full destruction of Hamas, and will stop at nothing to get there. And on Hamas's side, Um, they're very stuck to this idea that there has to be a total ceasefire and total withdrawal of forces before they can accept anything. So at the moment, it doesn't seem like there is the political will from either side, and particularly from the Israeli side, to pursue any kind of end to this conflict. Um, What makes it worse is that the one country that has significant influence over Israel, the United States, While their position today is different from a couple of months ago, they do seem to be starting to to come over to the side that a ceasefire would be a good idea. Um, Still, it seems to me like they're not putting enough pressure on Israel to come to the table. Uh, And you could say the same, actually, for some of uh, Israel's European partners. So ultimately, it will depend on how much the international community is able to coax Israel, pressure Israel to come to the table. Um, and, and both sides are going to have to make some significant compromises. Is there a sense, though, that you mentioned the idea of the, the, the United States not pushing hard enough? I mean, Anthony Blinken said that this plan is strong and compelling. That is obviously a positive narrative which is coming out of, of the White House. Um, but do we know if, if harder... Um, words are being used behind closed doors? Uh, it's unclear. Um, honestly, it really is unclear. And and yes, that was a, a clear statement of intention, which is good. It's, it's much better than how uh, some of the statements the US was making up until a few days or a few weeks ago. Um, but ultimately, when you look at it from further away, you have countries like the United States and others that did not hesitate 
um, to seize uh, or to suspend funding to a UN body that was helping um, uh, in, in the Palestinian territories. Um, and yet, uh, just a few days ago, continued to, to sign uh, weapons packages for Israel um, uh, at a time where, you know, the international community is crying out for a ceasefire. So uh, I think actions end up speaking louder than words, ultimately. Tell us a little bit more about what's happening at the UN today. We have the, the, Secretary Coun- the Security Council meeting following the ICJ ruling um, calling for Israel to prevent genocidal acts in Gaza. But we also have this continuing problem happening in Gaza with uh, UNWA, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Um, there is an international outcry and funding is being suspended by many countries about the uh, following the allegations made by Israel that um, employees of this UN agency were in fact allied and in fact perhaps working for, for Hamas. I mean, what path does the UN now tread? Uh, frankly, a pretty difficult one. Um, as you as you've mentioned, yes, uh, seventeen countries have frozen funding to this organization, which is really the primary agency for aid in Gaza. They provide healthcare services, water, food, shelter um, throughout the Palestinian territories and, and and places where Palestinians live outside of um, uh, uh, the Palestinian territories as well. Um, this isn't a new crisis. The, the freezing of the funds, yes, it comes recently, but um, UNRWA's budget has always been a, a problem because of its voluntary nature, because it was underfunded, um, and because, of course, there's donor fatigue because this conflict has been going on for, for the longest time. Um, so it isn't a new issue, but the suspension of the funding today has really made the crisis much more acute, particularly in the context of war. It's absolutely imperative that um, the international community allow the UN to investigate um, the claims. Uh, The 12 individuals that were accused of working with Hamas have been suspended in any case, um, and funding needs to resume, otherwise the agency will run out of money, um, allegedly by the end of February, which is really around the corner. And for that, if that happens, um, in the context of, of, of war, uh, in Gaza, that means that none of the healthcare services, none of the water, none of the food that, that the Strip um, is getting, along with other Palestinians outside, um, are going to get through. And so it really is a serious um, issue and it, and it will have dire consequences. Tina Esfandiri, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. A week ago, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets of Argentina. Their demonstration formed part of a general strike in protest at plans by the country's new prime minister to radically overhaul the country's economy. President Javier Miles promised deregulation, deep spending cuts and the devaluation of the peso. Well, that policy is being debated today in Parliament. And I'm joined by Andrew Thompson, journalist and political risk analyst specialising in Latin America. A very good morning to you. Welcome, Andrew. Good morning. So just could you summarise for us what's in this bill? Um, it is extremely difficult to summarise because the bill started out at 664 different policy initiatives. As a result of negotiations, that's now been whittled down to about 386. Uh, the best way of describing it is like um, a very big blank check for a government to deregulate, deregulate the Argentine economy uh, left, right and centre. So it's um, tracking what gets through and what doesn't is, if you like, a key to beginning to understand how successful 
the Malay government is going to be. Uh, a key issue is that um, today Congress begins to debate um, this omnibus bill um, and is expected to take up to 30, perhaps even 40 hours of discussions before it gets in a position to vote. So that takes us through from Wednesday into Thursday and possibly even Friday. So the the crux of this is a is a fundamental deregulation of a large part of the Argentinian economy, is that right? That's correct. There's also a very important issue of process. Um, the government basically wants... Uh, the power to take a whole sort of emergency economic measures and the opposition in Congress is saying no we're not going to give a blank check um, the decree in fact asks for two years of an emergency period in which the president can uh, take economic measures um, by decree uh, the congressional opposition is saying no no the role of Congress is to be um, is to audit the government and to question its policies on a on a case by case basis. So there's been obviously this this watering down of of the more than six hundred economic and political reforms to the three hundred and eighty something that you described a moment ago. I mean, how do they go about navigating through this? I mean, you say it's going to take a long time, but in all, there is no scope really to, for for sort of forensic examination here, is there? Uh, no, and that's what the opposition is is complaining about. Um, part of the issue is that this is a new government. It's an outsider government. Uh, the president has about two years of political experience. Um, so the question is, does he have the political skills necessary to broker deals with the opposition? And at the moment, that's looking um, quite a difficult part of the new government's um, behavior, really. So one of the odd things is that to get the bill passed, the government needs to build some bridges to sort of centrist uh, political groups, and particularly to groups to the to provincial politicians. And what the government seems to have been doing is actually annoying um, those politicians. Uh, the president is on record saying um, he's going to squeeze the provinces until they have no money left uh, to force them to accept the overall omnibus bill. And that's creating some significant bad feeling uh, precisely among the people he needs to support his initiative. Um, speaking of bad feeling, last week Argentina, as I mentioned a moment ago, so saw a widespread protest and, and a national strike, especially in Buenos Aires. Um, just explain to us how the country has reacted to these proposals, given the fact that Javier Millet has been in power for a matter of weeks, and this is what he promised to do. Um, it's interesting. Argentina, I mean, it's not new to say that Argentina is a politically divided country. Um, so uh, it is kind of correct to say at least half the country is deeply, deeply disturbed um, about what the new president is doing and essentially see him as dismantling the welfare state. Uh, on the other hand, uh, a majority, uh, he got 55% of the vote in, in the elections last year, um, does think the economic crisis is so deeply embedded that some sort of emergency surgery is necessary. So it's quite a, a complicated uh, political moment um, his political honeymoon, if you like, his presidential honeymoon is going to be very, very short and it's 
possibly running out round about now. Tell us a little bit about the, the state of Argentina's economy and why this has prompted such radical reaction from the from the new president. I mean, the fact is that we're getting information that the Argentinian economy is set to contract by 2.8% this year. Those are IMF figures. That's 2024. But we go into this year already in a very unstable condition, don't we? Yes. Uh, and in, at one level, there's nothing new. Argentina's been struggling with stagflation for at least the last 30 years. Uh, and it's often quoted that a uh, hundred years ago, back in the 1920s, Argentina was one of the 10 richest countries in the world. Uh, and it's no longer in that position. Uh, the president's uh, basic uh, diagnosis um, is that this is because um, successive governments have always spent more than they raised in revenue. Perpetual uh, fiscal deficits, which have fed, which have caused the printing of money uh, and fed inflation. And Argentina is therefore uh, caught in this stop-go cycle where it just can't seem to get sustainable economic growth. His, he's a monetarist, so his solution is uh, zero deficit take the deficit out, which is what the plan is for next year. But how he actually balances that, how he uh, reduces spending and increases revenue is not yet entirely clear. Um, as part of the concessions he's making to try and get his omnibus bill, omnibus bill approved, he's withdrawn all the economic measures, uh, which amounted to about 1.8% uh, of GDP of extra income. And he's going to have to, he says he's still committed to the to the zero deficit. So he shall have to take other measures which will have to go through Congress uh, to try and uh, reduce spending and increase revenue. And one of the things that he said, I think he did an interview with the Wall Street Journal a little while ago, saying that, you know, the, the moves to privatise state companies, to slash government jobs, um, which prompted inflation and protests, he said quite clearly, there is no plan B for this. Yes, it does look as if there will be major privatizations, uh, but he has ma already made a concession. Um, the state oil company, uh, YPF, YPF, um, had been on the privatization list, but he's now removed it from that list, uh, possibly because managing uh, energy prices will be central to his attempts to, to get the economy onto a, a better pathway. Tell us a little bit more about just what effect having such a change in Argentina has on the rest of the continent. Um, it would be a good effect. I mean, it's interesting. Um, Argentina traditionally has its, perhaps its most important relationship in the region is with Brazil. Um, and the Brazilian uh, government, uh, although it's centre-left and the Argentine government is a uh, really a far-right government, um, they do have a lot of common interests. Uh, Brazil's interest is to see a stronger Argentine economy since a significant amount of Brazilian exports go, go to Argentina. Um, if you look wider, uh, there was a time when uh, South America seemed to be dominated by centre-left government. That's no longer really the case. It's a, it's a a mixture of different types of, of political persuasion. Uh, but they are all tracking the Argentine situation closely because really it has um, relevance to what the different governments are trying to do. And you, you mentioned that the connection with Brazil and the fact that Lula is moving, you know, is, is very much the left on the left here to have 
a relationship with Argentina now? I mean, where will Argentina perhaps find natural allies if if Brazil politically is no longer aligned so closely? It won't be that closely aligned with uh, with Brazil, although Lula's always been a pragmatist. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, Millet called Lula, you know, a, a wicked communist. And since coming to power, the Argentines have also begun to be uh, a, a bit more uh, pragmatic in their approach. Andrew Thompson, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme, we head to Denmark for the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair, SIF, the largest and longest-running fashion fair in Northern Europe. So stay tuned to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's 10.22 in Nairobi, which is where we head next to get today's papers. Joining me down the line is the multimedia journalist Naveena Kotto. A very good morning to you. How's Nairobi looking this morning? Good morning. It's very sunny. It's a really, really beautiful day. We're okay. witnessing um, a butterfly migration currently. How wonderful. What does that look like? Yes. Well, it looks like uh, there's a special type of white butterflies that crosses uh, the continent at this time of the year. And we are lucky enough to experience it this year, I think, also because we've had enough rain. Um, so it's quite a magical thing to experience, actually. How wonderful. Thank you for that. I think we should all go and look that up. Uh, Navina, uh, let's move away from a really beautiful image that you've just given us to the, to the uh, nitty gritty of the newspapers. Where do you want to begin? Let's start in South Africa. Um, I have to say that's a story that has been of interest in South Africa, but also um, in the papers in Uganda and in Kenya. And it's uh, the decision that the ANC took this week to suspend Jacob Zuma, the former president, who is a member of the ANC. Um, Zuma had tried or has set up his own political movement. uh, And he also criticized the ANC, saying he will not vote for the governing party this year. We're expecting elections in summer, that he will not campaign for the ANC of Ramaphosa. And as a reaction to that, um, the ANC suspended him immediately, although it's on a temporary basis, um, accusing him of provoking division, um, bringing the ANC into disrepute and campaigning for a party that it had not endorsed. Um, Analysts are saying that Zuma didn't really want to launch a new party. He was just trying to weaken Cyril Ramaphosa's efforts to reform the ANC. Um, so I think we'll have to see, uh, wait and see how this plays out uh, in the next couple of months ahead of the election. I mean, what is the long-term uh, plan for, for Zuma here? Is he, I mean, having obviously been suspended from the ANC now, is there a sense that he will you know, go it alone and pull people with him? He will probably try to go it alone and pull people with him, but um, it is unlikely that he will make uh, significant gains. Uh, He's also 81, but the suggestion is that he was really trying to weaken the ANC, weaken Ramaphosa's uh, efforts to reform the ANC in order to install allies uh, within the ANC who would then take over from him. Um, Let's move to a story which... um is a totally change in, change of narrative um, on a on a running current story at the moment. Much has been said about the disruption and the extra cost and uh, the problems caused by the Houthi rebels based out of Yemen launching attacks on ships trying to get through the Red Sea. Um, maps have been shown all over the world about the fact that these ships are now having to go 
via the Cape of Good Hope, which, by all accounts, is proving to be an absolutely wonderful time for those living and operating around the Cape of Good Hope. Yes, exactly. There are winners and losers in this. Um, the Egyptian authorities have complained. They are bearing the economic brunt of Houthi attacks uh, in the Red Sea. The chairman of the Suez Canal Authority is saying that the attacks have really um, basically, that the revenue has plum- plummeted in just in January. Um, on the other hand, countries like Namibia, Mauritius, South Africa are really benefiting from, um, from all these ships uh, passing their ports. Um, they have to refuel in ports in South Africa, especially in Cape Town and in Durban, but also Mauritius in in Port Louis and Namibia have benefited from this traffic. And um, I think uh, they are hoping to see a bit more of it, I have to say. Um, But I think it's important to remember that not all countries on the continent are benefiting from this. This is driving up the cost of goods, of imported goods, goods especially of fuel. And countries that are highly fuel dependent, like Ghana, Kenya, Ethiopia, uh, are already experiencing... um, um, an increase, a price increase. So um, not everyone is as happy about uh, the change of the uh, about the rerouting. And indeed, the thought is that this will only be temporary uh, until the the Houthi rebels stop uh, carrying out their attacks in the Red Sea. Yes, exactly. Okay. Thank you for that. Let's move on to um, yesterday on, on The Globalist. We were talking about the fact that uh, the three countries, Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger, um, promptly have decided to leave ECOWAS. And it's, it's a culmination of about four or five months worth of, of, of wrangling and ECOWAS um, uh, sort of threatening military action following foreign coups right across the region. Um, what's the take where you are about, about how this is all being played out? Again, this is being observed uh, and discussed in most of the papers, not just in West Africa, but also in East Africa. The African Union has stepped in and said uh, that they should seek uh, negotiations. Um, a delegation from Togo has arrived in um, in has arrived this week in Niger to negotiate. Um, it's being called Africa's Brexit moment. Um, I think everyone is quite clear about the fact that if it goes ahead and um, uh, observers are pointing to the fact that um, you usually need to give one year notice if you want to leave ECOWAS. Um, it will come with a big economical and political problems for all the countries, but especially for these three countries. So the hope is really that there can be some kind of negotiated solution to this. Um, one thing, you've actually written about it in today's Monocle Minute, um, and you mentioned two things. Uh, firstly, the fact that ECOWAS needs to tread th- things very lightly and that an olive branch is perhaps the best way to try and resolve this. But secondly, you mentioned the, th- the, the presence of Russia in all this. Yes, it coincides. This exit on Sunday coincides with uh, Russia's announced efforts to increase its uh, presence, its footprint on the continent. Um, it wants to uh, reform the the presence it already has uh, with Wagner. Um, and basically, the reports are that it, uh, Russia is aiming to put together a force uh, of up to 20,000 people uh, in friendly countries like Burkina Faso, Niger, Libya. Um, and that's also aimed at controlling Wagner's business empire. Um, we saw that the, uh, at the end of last week, uh, the Russians donated 25,000 tons of wheat to Burkina Faso. That was shortly before Russian military specialists arrived in the capital, Ouagadougou, to support the government of Burkina Faso that's dealing with um, cha- uh, security challenges on its borders. So I really think there is much more at stake than just an um, economic impact of not being able to trade. 
in the region. Um, yes, ex- explain to us a little bit more. There's an article in Le Monde, actually, which, which you wanted to draw our attention to, which talks about the strategy that Russia now has in um, in that part of the world. But most importantly, the, the presence of Wagner. Um, and it has been well documented, the, the, the use of Wagner, the mercenary group, to, to add support in whatever way to, to whatever um, authorities or, or, or regimes are operating. But the fact is that the, Wagner lost Yevgeny Prigozhin at the, in, in August last year, and effectively Wagner lost its leader. So what is Wagner now doing in Russia, and indeed who's in charge? I mean, what Le Monde, but also other papers are suggesting is that the Russian government is now trying to absorb uh, Wagner's presence uh, and expand it uh, in order to increase the footprint by sending much more people than Wagner actually had uh, on the continent and by increasing military cooperation and very selective economic cooperation. Um, I think we have to see how successful that is. But it's important to remember that the Wagner presence in Africa, as much as there has been a lot of talk about it, and it's been well documented, was in a few thousands. We're now talking about 20,000 troops on the ground um, that are supposed to arrive over the next half year. And I think we will see in the next six months if that's actually really successful or if the countries refuse to cooperate or if other countries decide uh, to try and counter that influence. And now that um, Niger, Bikini Faso and Mali have departed ECOWAS, what, what can ECOWAS do about this? In fact, does it have a role here? Um, I do really think there is a there is an attempt to come up with some economic solutions and also discuss with these countries that are suffering from insurgencies on its borders uh, and that are not able to to really counter these insurgencies um, to offer some kind of military support or security cooperation. That's really, um, I think, one area that uh, analysts are saying ECOWAS neglected and that um, they are now seeking some kind of cooperation uh, and some kind of support. If that is going to be really successful, I think we will probably see in a year or two years' time because um, these are not really easy solutions. But um, the suggestion is that if this instability in the Zaha region is not addressed by the region, the entire region is going to suffer. Naveen Akoto, thank you for joining us on the line from Nairobi. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson, live on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is 7.31. A quick look now at the latest headlines. The US president says he's now decided how to respond to the attack by Iran-backed militants on American soldiers in Jordan, killing three service personnel. Joe Biden hasn't said what the plans are, but the US is under huge pressure to send a strong message to Tehran without risking all-out war. It's believed now that half of the buildings in Gaza have been destroyed or damaged since Israel launched its military operation against Hamas. Imagery suggests that southern and central Gaza may have been the most heavy hit in the last two months. A Muslim group in Canada has cancelled a meeting with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau over the government's response to the Gaza war and rising Islamophobia. The head of the National Council of Canadian Muslims said Ottawa has been unwilling to take concrete action to help end the war. Spain's Congress has blocked a controversial amnesty bill that aimed to protect Catalan separatists. The Together for the Catalonia Party voted against it over fears it doesn't provide enough protection for politicians who are being investigated for terror-related crimes. The legislation has divided Spain. And Liverpool has handed over the symbolic keys to Eurovision to this year's host, Sweden. The UK city hosted the annual song contest last year on behalf of Ukraine. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
Now, the authorities in Hong Kong say there are plans to introduce a fresh security law in response to what they say are foreign agents and Hong Kong independence advocates. The legislation, known as Article 23, will work alongside the existing national security law introduced by Beijing four years ago. Well, James Chambers is Monocle's Asia editor. He joins me on the line now from Bangkok. A very good afternoon. I should say good afternoon to you, James. Good morning, Emma. Thank you for joining us. Uh, just explain to us this, this new law, Article 23. What does it involve, please? Well, in a sense, Article 23 uh, is nothing new. It was actually, it's in the, the, the basic law, Hong Kong's Min Constitution, uh, that was uh, uh, been in, in place since 97. Uh, and under that provision, the Hong Kong government was meant to come up with a national security law for Hong Kong. Uh, and famously, it's failed to do so since the handover. It tried in 2003, and that caused huge protests and, and led to the, the first chief executive of Hong Kong having to step down. So this, in a, in a way, is the second attempt by the Hong Kong government to actually uh, come up with its own national security legislation um, in t- 2024. But as you said, it follows on from uh, what happened in 2020, when actually the Beijing government had to step in uh, and basically get the ball rolling. So what does it look like? This the the, the you know it works alongside the national security law, but what differences or indeed extra measures do, do the Hong Kong authorities deem necessary? So what happened in twenty twenty was obviously not planned. Uh, the Beijing government felt like they had to step in and act at speed to to quash what was happening in Hong Kong with the with the protests. So they introduced this legislation that tackled you know, very, four distinct national security crimes, things like subversion and, and terrorism and collusion. Um, and then uh, that was very effective. Um, you know, it brought the protest to an end. But they then you know, put the ball back into the Hong Kong government's court and said, now it's over to you guys to basically to complete the job. You still need uh, to bring in uh, your own legislation, your own domestic legislation as required under Article 23. So when John Lee, the current chief executive, when he took over in 2022, he made it very clear that he saw it as one of his top priorities to make sure this happened. Um, so yesterday, he basically announced this the first step, which is a, a public consultation. So it was a 110-page uh, pamphlet uh, setting out you know, why they need to do this um, and uh, what they have planned. One wonders what a public consultation looks like in Hong Kong nowadays. Well, I mean, how much dissent can one expect from it? Yes, I mean, this is, uh, in, a, in a way, this is a, going back to how it used to be because, um, you know, Hong Kong, the government does do these public consultations and it did do it in 2003. They gave the, the public three months uh, to, to kind of re- respond to their plans. Um, this time around, the government is coming under fire because they're only given the public one month um, and it's happening over Chinese New Year, which is obviously going to be very unpopular. Chinese New Year is going to happen next week. It's the biggest holiday in, in, in this part of the world. Uh, and the, the, the public have been kind of dumped with this 110-page booklet to read. Um, but what I would say is, I guess this is a, this is better than what Carrie Lam, the previous chief executive, tried to do with the the famous extradition uh, treaty. I mean, she tried to push that through without any public consultation. So you could say 
uh, that, that John Lee is being uh, you know, better uh, than his predecessor, uh, but it is, it's still considered that he's not given people um, enough time uh, to digest and comment on something as big as this. And also, as you rightly say, um, I mean, the, the ability for people to actually share their opinions on things like this is not what it was in 2003. Uh, finally, James, um, you're in Bangkok. There's some, uh, we're about a week after the former leader of the opposition moved forward being, being cleared um, of uh, criminal charges. Thailand's constitutional court is, is in the process of issuing another judgment and it is happening at the moment, isn't it? So could you just briefly bring us up to date in the context and, and where we are? Yeah, so just to bring it to speed, move move forward. You know, they they won the election, but they were pushed into the opposition. Um, uh, and the Thai establishment likes to use the, the courts as a way to kind of uh, silence opposition. So um, the Move Forward Party and their former leader, uh, Peter Lamjaroinrat, has been facing a number of court cases. Uh, he was he, he won his one last week, so he can remain as an MP. And now the party face a big decision or a big verdict right now, which the Constitutional Court is is reading out as we speak. Um, and what they're going to rule on is whether the party's uh, party advocating for the amendment of Thailand's pretty strict Les Majeste laws, uh, Section 112, is constitutional or not. Um, if they deem it unconstitutional, then the Move Forward Party is likely to face further uh, petitions and further court cases that could actually end in the party being dissolved. So I guess we're going to have to w- watch very closely to see what happens. Thank you for that update. James Chambers in Bangkok. You're listening to Monocle Radio. in Berlin, 7.39 here in London. Now, could Berlin be facing life without its beating heart of retail, KDV? Whether it's a spin around the luxury sections or a trip up to the sixth floor to the legendary food hall for a delicious morsel and a spot of people watching, the department store is an institution, but it appears to be under threat because KDV is insolvent. The group which operates in Berlin, Hamburg and Munich says exorbitantly high rents make it almost impossible to operate profitably in the long term. Well, to discuss this in the future of the department store, I'm joined by Thomas Rubb, a Professor of Business and Retail Management at the bonn rhein Sieg University of Applied Sciences. A very good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning. So how come Cardeve is bankrupt? Why they are uh, stuck in the same insolvency uh, um, problems of Siegner Group, which is 50% <clears throat> owner of, uh, of Cardeve. The other 50%, roughly 50%, go to a tie. Um, retail group and um, it's not quite clear but uh, since the whole Signa group is um, practically insolvent um, it's likely that um, cash problems, liquidity problems are affecting KDV as well <coughs> there seems to be another problem as well uh, given that Kade- that Signa is only part owner of the whole thing and as you mentioned before, the the rent is is a major impediment to uh, the recovery of uh, of KDV. Um, perhaps the ties are provoking a little bit the insolvency in order to get rid of the um, of the uh, those uh, those high rents. 
Just explain to us a little bit more about Zigna Retail. They are a very troubled Austrian-based property empire, aren't they? Because I think it was last year they they filed for insolvency themselves. But why are they in so much trouble? Yeah, Zigna Group has been founded by a very young man back then. He, he wasn't even in his 20s and he is still is quite young, his early 40s. And he created a huge uh, real estate empire on betting on long-term low um, interest rates and uh, invested quite aggressively. And among the things that he bought, as, as you said, it's a, retail, uh, it's an, it's a real estate em- empire. He also bought a 130-store uh, um, German uh, department store chain. Uh, we, as external observers, believe he was more interested in the real estate he got this way. And um, he burdened those uh, stores with high rents, which uh, dry, drove up the, the value of those, uh, of those buildings of the real estate. And that, again, allowed him to... Um, uh, to take on um, uh, higher higher debts with um, with the banks in order to finance his real estate expansion. Now, with interest rates rising, uh, the whole thing has has uh, imploded. Now, you mentioned the Thai Central Group. They own, I think, it's just over fifty percent of 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 KDV. In fact, they have a finger in practically every single luxury retail pie practically across the world, don't they? I mean, they have Selfridges, they have Rinascente. Just explain to us what you said that they were trying to make a little bit of trouble. What do you mean by that? Yeah, the thing is that um, they own 50.1% of the KDV business and they own 49.9% of the building, the real estate. And uh, they have an interest in um, using the insolvency um, situation to um, to get rid, uh, to, to cancel the... Uh, uh, the, 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 the the rental uh, contract and in order to get uh, rid of those high rents. Uh, and this, of course, would uh, um, benefit them as owner of the business and would put uh, the whole KDV business on a, on a more stable footing. So the argument here is that actually if you can d- declare yourself insolvent, you can renegotiate your rent and you can bring the, r- the rent down a little bit. I mean, I mentioned at the beginning of this interview that Berlin could face life without... How how realistic a prospect is that, honestly, Thomas? Yeah, KDV seems to be a profitable outfit after all, and um, they are quite successful. So I don't think um, it's it's a real possibility that KDV is going to disappear from the Berlin retail landscape. Uh, the question, of course, is who is going to take over the business, but as Central Group is very much interested in, in, in maintaining the business and actually uses the insolvency uh, process as a means of stabilizing the business rather than weaken it, because, as you said, it's going to allow them to uh, to lower the rent, not just a bit, but significantly, actually. Uh, I don't think that KDV is going to disappear. They, they are still in the business anyway. Thomas Rubb, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. 
It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. here in London. Now it's time to talk art with Ben Luke, review editor at the art newspaper, host of its podcast, and also, I'm delighted to say, someone who's joined me in the studio. Good morning to you, Ben. How's life in the world of art? It's exciting. It's gone bananas. It's gone gone bananas. We had a slowish start to the year, but it's really geared up, and we've had this massive trial in in New York. We do love a massive trial (laughs) here on Monocle Radio. So so it is not a simple trial to explain, and you have just opened your very beautiful leather-bound notebook (laughs) with phenomenally complicated notes with an awful lot of underlining. So just fill us in. This is about a fraud case involving Russian billionaire Leonardo da Vinci and others, yes, um, and Modigliani as well, I think, um, and Sotheby's, yes. and that's about as much as I understand. So you're going to have to okay. help us. Okay, I will try and put it simply. It is enormously complicated, and it has been rumbling on for a very, very long time. And this may be the end point. So basically, you mentioned the Russian billionaire Dmitry Rubolovlev, right? So he bought two billion dollars worth of art from a Swiss dealer called Yves Bouvier. It turns out, after a while, he worked out that he feels he was defrauded for one billion of that two billion because Bouvier was buying works and then marking them up massively, very quickly, and selling them to him. So just to give you an example, one of the works at the centre of this is the Salvatore Mundi, which is the most famous work of art in the world, possibly, at the moment, because it was the work that sold for $450 million at Christie's as a Leonardo, much disputed, uh, in, in 2017. But in 2013, Rybolovlev bought this from, um, from Bouvier. Right. But to give you the statistics, Bouvier bought it for 83 million and right. sold it to Rybolovlev for 127.5 million. Bit Didn't of keep mar- it for 20 of- years. Didn't, yeah. you know, it sold it the next day. The next day. So that's a, that's a good day's work. Isn't that's it? quite Forty-four big... million dollars. That's what you call a good markup. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, Ribolovlev says he says he was defrauded. Bouvier. To what degree? Well, he says that uh, Bouvier was his agent, acting as his agent. But Bouvier says, "No, I wasn't. I was acting as a dealer, and I'm. I can establish my profit margins." Turns out there's no paper trail. Massive error. And and one of the substances of this of this court case. It's, it's not between Bouvier and Rybolovlev, it's between Rybolovlev uh, and, and Sotheby's. I can't even and say so- the Russian billionaire's yeah. name. That's an and, and, and Sotheby's, and, and the, the Russian billionaire claims that Sotheby's aided Bouvier in this fraud, which was never proved, by the way. He's never been convicted of fraud or anything. So anyway, um, one of the key things about this is that this Russian billionaire did all this business in all these businesses over the world to the tune that he's now worth 6.4 billion, crossed I's and dotted T's in every other area of his business activities. But when it came to the art world, was suddenly naive and was was somehow uh, defrauded. But this is not the case. It, it, it's, it's so murky. It's, it's crucial that this is all about 
art world transparency. The art market is famously opaque and Rubolovlev chose to take on Sotheby's to try and prove how untransparent it all was and to say that Sotheby's, one of the, the, the most prominent institutions in the entire art world, is a part of this opacity and, in fact, here criminally negligent, but, yes, but, but, but that they've been vindicated. I mean, he, he accused Sotheby's of conspiring with this art dealer, yeah. Yves Bouvier, to trick him into playing into playing yes. paying such enormous prices um the, it took what three weeks for all this to be laid out yes, in court yeah. frankly I, that must have been quite a, quite a listen um, yeah. but it didn't take very long for the jury to come back and no. say actually no hang on a minute Sotheby's was completely fine here yeah so well yes Sotheby's was not guilty of uh aiding uh Bouvier in defrauding uh the Russian billionaire and the, and the fact is that, as I say, Bouvier has never been convicted of fraud anyway. So it's a complex case in that sense. But it, it's, you know, Sotheby's will say it has been entirely vindicated. But I really urge people to go to the art newspaper and read Tim Schneider's reports on this because the the, the detail on this case is so extraordinary. And, and, and it, it does show just how untransparent the art world is. And Sotheby's will say it's been entirely vindicated, but I feel that there's a murkiness in the dealings that here. Samuel Vallette, who's the the chairman of private sales, was, you know, talking clearly to Bouvier. They had, you know, Sotheby's did sell lots of works to, to Bouvier. What what they didn't do, they say, and, and which the jury says they didn't do, was was aid Bouvier in lying, which everybody agrees happened to Ribolovlev. So it's it's an extraordinary complex case and it's but it's very telling about the murkiness of the art market. And will this that this exposure to a certain degree of the murkiness of the art market will this actually change anything? Well, I I don't think it's in anyone in the actual art market's interest for it to change. Um I think had the jury come back and said Sotheby's was guilty here then it would have, but I don't think I, don't, I can't imagine this is going to make much difference. And um, Sotheby's will feel that they come out of this with their reputation intact, that they are to be trusted. And um, and so why should they change what they're doing? They did everything by the book, they say. And so why should they change anything? But definitely this has put a spotlight on just how extraordinary the art market is. Let's touch on something else that's extraordinary that you've been reporting in the art newspaper, which is the, the rise of the immersive experience. I think one of the one of the examples that's been talked about is the um, the U2 residency in Las Vegas at the yeah. Sphere, mm. where Ez Devlin just did astonishing things yeah. with the inside of a sphere and transported us everywhere. Um, OK, you have to go to Las Vegas for that, but that's this immersive aspect is huge now, isn't it? It is, and there's a whole range of these immersive experiences, and it's a massively burgeoning market. It's growing hugely. Um, the reason that we've gone on the front page of the art newspaper this month with this story is, for the first time, we've got stats which say that these immersive experiences are now becoming the most visited attractions above the British Museum and above the National Gallery. Now... Those statistics relate to Alternet, which is this space in Tottenham Court Road. Right as the minute you exit Tottenham Court Road tube, there there are massive screens in front of you. To to visit it is not hard. You just need to walk across a threshold and you're in there. So 6.25 million visits is 
astonishing number, but it's pretty easy to get in there compared to the British Museum or the National Gallery. And then, of course, there's the, I guess, the the big question is the quality of that experience and, and the extent to which it is meaningful as an artistic or cultural experience. And that that's where the art world's gnashing its teeth a bit in the sense that, you know, museums have got to sit up and take note here. Digital experiences are ubiquitous. They're growing. They have massive investment from private equity and so on. And they are drawing a an audience. So does the museum world now feel it has to compete or absorb this uh, and what's it going to do about it that's going to be an intriguing question it'll get sore next when we go and look at it that's for sure <laughs> ben luke thank you so much for joining me in the studio you're listening to the globalist Now, today marks the start of Copenhagen International Fashion Fair, SIF, the trade show taking place at Bella Centre in Copenhagen. Now, it's in its 62nd iteration. This year features an expanded programme that will also include a new show space and catwalk shows, following a tripling of visitors reaching more than 17,000 during its previous edition. This season will register a 30% expansion. More than 200 new brands will be introduced participating in the show. Well, Monocle Radio is there and broadcasting for the rest of the week, and our pop-up cafe studio sitting inside it right now joining me from copenhagen is sophie dolver who's director of sif copenhagen international fashion fair Uh, thank you so much for joining us sophie thank you for having me and could you just describe where you are because i've seen pictures of this wonderful pop-up stall it's like a it's like its very own shop it is it's a very cute little it it looks kind of parisian actually um here at the bella center so it's a, it's a small cafe and, and podcast studio where we'll um, be interviewing some of the, the brands and buyers coming through for the next three days. It's absolutely delightful to, to see pictures of it. And I urge everybody to go down there if they are in, in Copenhagen, but also to go and have a look at SIF. I mean, what makes SIF so special? I think it's, um, it's different parameters. Um, for this season, I think um, we see that everybody really wants to stand together in this difficult market. So we have a thousand brands gathered under one roof and we see all kinds of different brands and segments ranging from commercial brands to emerging, more niche um, to, to the brands that are also on the show schedule. So you can really get inspired and um, what we are trying to do this season is also to transform the, the whole area to, to Sif City to get a little bit of Copenhagen inside the Bella Center. But and I think in, in, this, in this market, everybody wants to actually have the physical um, platform to to meet and talk and and just network so we have a huge backing from the brands and buyers this season and as a result this really puts copenhagen on the map doesn't it as a, as a bit of a fashion hub it really does it really does and that we also see in the numbers right now we see that actually 40 percent of the registered buyers and visitors are from outside the nordics um, a huge increase from asia canada and, and us this season so we really have a huge momentum and right now we also saw that we're actually doubling the registration numbers from the the previous season. I mean it's growing and growing. What is it do you what is it about about SIF and the way that you are you're running this that makes it so attractive and is making it grow so fast? I think it's of course because we have been around for 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 30 years so people know us and we have um a big range of loyal brands supporting us and and that's uh, you know it's also the 
the word that is spreading uh, around. And I think because they see that we really match make um, the right brands with the right, right buyers. So they, they get a lot of benefits from, from being here. And also the community that we have around the brands to also help them with different you know, business advice and to, to get them um, out into different markets throughout the year. So I think it's the community and the platform and of, of course the return of investment um, in the end. Indeed, that's right. So tell us a little bit, Sophie, about some of the highlights that you're the most excited about. I mean, you're obviously you're director of this thing, so you can, you can tell us what we should all be going to. I think what I am most excited about is actually just to to watch the buzz and the energy um, around. Um, I can already sense from from yesterday when all the brands were building up that they just have a huge energy despite of the um, the market situation. That they they are really positive to be here and to show the collection and to really look forward in a positive way. So I, I think what I'm most excited about is just the bus and then of course also to see all our plazas and um, different inspirational areas uh, being taken um, into use by all the visitors. But this season we're also actually having some of the official shows inside the Bella Center. So on Thursday we'll have a live show on our bridge actually above our monocle podcast studio so so that is one of the highlights for this week sophie dolva thank you so much and wishing you all the best for sif this year thank you so much for joining us on the line from copenhagen you can hear the special episodes of monocle on design in partnership with the copenhagen international fashion fair online right now at monocle.com slash radio well that's all the time we have for today's programme many thanks to all my guests and thanks to our producers Vincent McAvinney, Chris Chermak and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs our researcher was Naomi Ekwa and our studio manager was Steph Chungu after the headlines more music on the way the briefing's live at midday here in London and the Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow but for now from me Emma Nelson goodbye thank you very much for listening <laughs>